Hey, we are, we are currently in a series uh, called Real Jesus, Real People. Uh, we believe that Jesus was real. We believe he walked this earth. We believe he interacted with real people. And because of it, we believe that he changed the course of history. We believe that uh, it was recorded in a book called the Bible. And we believe that book holds power and truth and freedom and life and um, and we, uh, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, which is the most thorough account, the largest account of the story of Jesus himself. And we are, we are coming down the home stretch. We've, I think we've got three or four more weeks, uh, but they're going to be good weeks, and we are excited about it, and we are thankful for where we've gotten to go so far. Um, today, uh, we, we are going to uh, title today's uh, talk. Um, Mark, would you put the title up for me? We're going to title it Lost and Found, and you will certainly see why we're titling that in a second. But if you have your Bibles, we will be in Luke 14 through 18. We've got a lot to cover, and we are going to try to get you out of here early um, today so that you can go hang out at our ministry fair. Thank you for not applauding, for being let out early. (laughs) Appreciate you all a lot. I'm struggling with this podium. Someone moved it in between services, and I'm angry. All right, here we go. So uh, there's a lot of things about our current climate, our current generation, our current time in history uh, that is being defined about us. And uh, many of them are counterintuitive to what the gospel teaches. But I want to give you... Uh, a, a couple of definitions that I have found for the current culture and climate that we are currently living in. The first one was I saw an article written uh, that described us in the culture of self-regulation. The culture of self-regulation. I, I read another thing that described um, this current climate as a culture of self-moralization. Self-moralization. Raise your hand if you can vouch that you have seen that. Another uh, another book that I was reading described our current climate as the culture of consumerism. Another uh, another bit of work titled us the culture of addiction. One that I saw just just last night actually. Uh, was a really astounding bit of work. It was titled, The Culture of Repetitive Compulsion. The Culture of Repetitive Compulsion. What era of time did you grow up in? I grew up in the repetitive compulsion time. (laughs) It was a bit of good time. The culture of superabundance has been referenced of our time. Superabundance. But the one that I saw show up the most, the one that I kept stumbling upon, was this phrase, the culture of radical individualism. The culture of radical individualism. Um, Most of these point to uh, a way of life, a time in our history of self-promotion, of self... um, fulfillment, and yet, these are also said about our time, 
that we live in the generation of loneliness, that it's very peak that it's ever been, depression, suicide is the second leading cause of death for the generation younger than myself. Like, astounding. We live in the generation of self-medication. We are in a time where people are self-medicating more than they have ever in the past. And anxiety is at its extreme peak. We are living in what is being defined as um, a progressive secular age in a world defined by post-Christianity ethics and motivated by this promise of freedom, of utopia, of bliss. Um, the word secular, I want to define it just because just it gets thrown around a lot. Secular is anything that is separated from God or religion. So if you, if you, if you said someone, hey, I, I, the, someone claims I'm an atheist or I'm a Gnostic, those would be people that believe there is no God, there is no religion. Um, but the, the, let's call them like the attitudes or the activities or things that are described without God or without religion, those would be titled secular. Does that make sense? So there's kind of a, kind of a difference there, but also a bit of the same. So we live in this secular post-Christian age and... What is being promised to us is this promise of freedom. Here's the promise. True freedom comes from indulging your desires, your passions, and your endless amounts of pleasures to their promised end. And as long as the pursuit of such longings does not hurt anyone else, then it is good and it is right. It's failing and it's falling flat on its face. This system that promised happiness, that promised freedom, that promised utopian way of life of fill yourself up, go after all that you can chase down, is actually falling flat on its face. And those who are promising such way of living are getting really, really good at selling it because they have to. How many um, stories of a wealthy celebrity do we have to hear about or watch as they indulge in self have all the means to promote self, have all the wealth to pursue anything they want, and how often do we find them self-destructing? Like literally imploding on self. How many, how many stories do we have to hear to be convinced that maybe this promise, this postmodern promise of freedom is maybe not actually the best way how many times does this narrative that we hear have to keep going for us to be convinced that there might be something different listen to this narrative you've heard it you've heard it so many times i had to come to the end of my rope and then what if what if what if we like 
figured out a way to not have to get to that point? What if we figured out a way to not have to get to the end of the rope before we called out for help? What if there was a way, and and I believe there is, and I believe it is found on the words and the pages of God's Word. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 14. Ecclesiastes is um, Solomon. He maybe is the wealthiest person of all time, certainly uh, for his time, indulged to the extreme. And this is his account of what he took in as he viewed life. After all that he had tried, all that he had done, right here in the opening remarks of his thing, he says, I've been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I've looked most carefully into everything, searched out all that is done on this earth. And let me tell you, there is not much to write home about. He he later will describe it as, um, it's like clutching after the wind. There's this beautiful story of this farmer in Ireland and his neighbors watched him closely because he, he, he did a particularly uh, odd thing as he uh, took care of his sheep. So he would take them out to pasture and where his pasture was located was on the side of these cliffs. And the sheep would constantly be searching for this particular type of grass. It was a little bit sweeter. It was a little bit more filling. Um, and they would be prone to wander to pursue it. And on several occasions, on the edges of these cliffs, there would be little tiers, little, little step-downs, not the full-blown cliff, but just little five- to six-foot drops. And on these little landings would be primarily where this grass would grow. And so the sheep would be wandering along pasture and see this grass just down, just barely out of reach, and they would hop down into these ledges. And the farmer would then just leave the sheep on the ledges for up to a month at a time. Just leave them there. And finally, one of his neighbors, one of the uh, passers-by came up to him and said, Hey, what's the deal with the sheep on the ledge? Why do you keep doing that? And he said, Well, if I were to jump down with the sheep onto the ledge, I would spook it and it would jump off the cliff and kill itself. And even if I got down on the ledge in such a way that it didn't see me coming, it would never let me pick it back up to lift it up the five or six feet and put it back on top of the ledge. So he says, so what I do is I let it indulge itself on all the grass. I let it eat all the grass on the ledge until it is gone. And then I let it starve itself to death. And at the point right before it dies, it's weak, it's frail, it can't get up, it can't move. Then I jump down on the ledge and I pick it up and it lets me pick it up and I move it back up to the pasture. That's not been any of your stories, I know. What if the narrative could start to change from self-indulgence to the point of self-destruction? What if there was a different way? 
Jesus is going to tell us uh, about 15 parables. We're not going to get to all of them, and we're going to move kind of quickly through them. Um, But in all of them, you're going to see a similar thread, a similar theme, a similar concept, a similar way, a similar system. And and it's going to be this system um, that requires losing in order to gain. It is a system um, that requires humility. It is a system that gives a different way of approaching life. And I want to tell you, for me, there are words in these parables that have shaped my life. I tell you often that I believe the Bible is life-changing and that I want you to have one if you don't own one because I think it will shape and change your life. Some of these words have changed my life. If you don't know my story, uh, I, I have struggled with for many years and maybe uh, to some degree forever, but I have struggled with pride. I have struggled. Um, I wrote them down just because there's a lot of them. I've struggled with selfishness, uh, self-righteousness. I've struggled with entitlement. That was it. That's just those four. Um <laughs> But these words have shaped and begun to shape the way that I see my own life, the way that I see my role in life, the way that I see how I live my life. And I do believe, and I am becoming more and more convinced, that there is a better way uh, that Jesus is promising than pursuing pursuing, um, self and the exalting of self. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in Luke 14. 7 through 11. Uh, This is the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding feast. And what I'm going to do, most of these parables, you guys, that we're going to go through are actually pretty simple this time. They're actually pretty black and white. So I'm not going to spend as much time trying to describe what the parable is or what it means or why he said it. Uh, I'm more going to describe what the parable is and then pull out one verse from it of a saying that Jesus said within it. Cool? You okay with that? you said no, I was still going to do it. So it's okay. All right. So here's the, here's the, here's the story. This parable is really simple. Jesus is describing this, this wedding feast. And he says, Hey, when you go to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor, because if you sit in the seat of honor and someone else shows up that has more honor than you, they're going to kick you out of the seat and it's going to be kind of embarrassing for you. So when you get to the party, go sit in the lowest seat. And then when, when the head chief shows up and he's like, bro, You don't deserve to be in that seat. Come, let me give you the good seat. You'll be exalted that way. And then this is the line that Jesus says within that parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That word everyone, when you translate it, it means everyone. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember this phrase. It will be the last phrase in the last parable we read today as well. Kind of bookends. Uh, I want to just tell you a quick story about me. It's just a a great little picture of this. I had gotten a new job with a company. This is eight years ago. And the company was based out of Chicago. And I was there on a training. So it was like a 10-day training. And they gave us money. Um, for our food. And it was actually kind of fairly a lot of money. 
Um, actually, it was more of a reimbursement, and I didn't have any money, so my father-in-law lent me some money when I went. Um, but either way, they gave us a, a large sum of money and, for each one of our meals. I think it was like 30 to $50, um, and I didn't spend it. I just would go eat it like Taco Bell the whole time I was there, so that on the last evening, um, I had a bunch of money to go blow on a really nice meal, right? It's not my money, so I was like, this is awesome. So I, I, my favorite thing is sushi. I'm just, I like sushi. And so I look up best sushi place in Chicago, and sure enough, I find this really expensive sh- sushi restaurant, and I'm like, perfect. And so I go in, and I'm, I'm just kind of walking in. I know I've got a ton of money I'm going to spend. And I'm like, I'd like one of your nice tables. And uh, the lady goes, yeah, you've got to get a reservation like weeks out to eat here. And I'm kind of defeated. She goes, but you can sit over here. It's kind of like near the bar, but it's, it's kind of, you, you only can really order off of the appetizer menu, and here's your seat. And so I'm too prideful to like get up and leave and go find a new restaurant. So I sit down at this weird seat that's not even really a part of the restaurant. And I'm like hating, hating, hating this moment. And all of a sudden, the hostess, maybe three minutes go by, and the hostess comes up to me and she says, uh, our head chef would like you to sit uh, at the main seat uh, right, up, right up against where he's cooking and, and serving sushi. And I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> so I walk over. And um, I sit down, and you know how like a bartender slides the piece of the napkin and then puts a water cup right on it? He does that move, and then he looks up, he goes, you're Caleb Lynch, huh? And I'm like, in fact, I am, yeah. (laughs) And and long story short, um, he knew me back from high school. Uh, I was a long-distance runner, and I was fairly good at it, and he also was a long-distance runner, and so was his brother, and they like, they like idolized me as a runner. They thought I was really good and really cool. And so anyways, he's like, hey, I want to treat you tonight. And you order whatever you want, and I'm going to actually bring you some other stuff. And so all evening, he just served me nice wine. And he's like, hey, here's a new thing on the menu that we haven't released yet, but I'm trying it out. I want you to try it. And it was like this beautiful picture of what we just got right here. So good little story. All right, let's keep going. Luke 14, 12 through 24. This is the parable of the great banquet. Kind of a similar story. This is one, a guy invites all these uh, well-to-do friends uh, to his big banquet, and they all come up with a reason why they can't be there. They all come up with excuses. So he goes, you know what, forget it. And so what he does is he goes and invites all these people that normally would have not been invited to the party, And um, this is what Jesus says. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Sounds simple enough. Uh, Really hard to live this. But he claims it's a better way. So let's keep going. Luke 14, 25 through 33, in my Bible, this is titled, The Cost of Discipleship. And um, Jesus is just really simply saying, hey, here's what it's going to look like if you're going to follow me. And these are the words he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. 
What do you do with that? <laughs> you don't have to preach on that, and I do. Um, here's the deal. It, it's just simply saying, in comparison to the way you trust and surrender to following my way, it'll appear as though you hate your mother and father and sister and self. Does that make sense, what he's saying? He's saying, look, your devotion will be so strong, it's going to look like total surrender, so much so that everything else looks like it's getting second fiddle. Did I say second fiddle? Is that even a thing? It's a verse somewhere. I've heard it before. Cool? Make sense? Are you catching the theme? Guys, these are not easy. And it is totally counterintuitive to what the world says is the way to approach life. And yet, Jesus keeps going. Let's keep going. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Um, this is the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. And you've heard both of them. Uh, a shepherd, he loses one sheep and he leaves the 99 behind and he goes and finds it. And he tells all his friends, I found my sheep. Let's throw a big old party. And they're like, sweet, let's do it. That's the first story. A lady loses a coin and she rips apart her whole house looking for it. She finds it and she says, hey, let's throw a party. I found my coin. Um, and so both of these stories, and, and what we often do with these stories is we, we, we portray them as a loving Savior with open arms searching for that one lost person that has not chosen to put their trust in Jesus. And very well, that is what these stories are about. Truth be told, that is what these stories are about. But look at how Jesus finishes both of the stories. Look at what he says. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he goes on with the second one. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The story is really about some individuals that have chosen to say, I'm turning from self-promotion... To God. Right? He's saying that's, that's the amazing thing. Is these people that were pursuing a life here and said, no, 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 I'm going to come under the authority of this one. Let's keep going. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you have not heard this story before. This is Luke 15, 11 through 31. They say this is the most known scripture in the world. More people know this story than any other story in scripture. Luke 15, 11 through 31. I want to put up a couple of verses here within it. You know the story. You know the premise of it. But, but here's a couple of verses. This, this first one is right at the start. And the second one, verse 29, is a little later on. And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father... Give me, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Give me what I deserve. And he divided his property between them. Remember the between them. Then to verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Um, 
there's a lot in this story. There's a lot that we've talked about with this story. You've heard dozens of variations. Uh, One of the things that stands out to me is you have the older brother saying, you never gave me what I wanted. And yet when you read the first part of it, look, and he divided his property between them. I never thought about that part. I always just thought the younger one came to dad and said, give me my share. And then he went out and squandered it all and and spent it on things. But the older son also got his share in that very moment as well. That interesting. And yet both are wanting to get what they believe they deserve. They're wanting to be loved on their terms. And I'll tell you this right now. It is really, really hard to receive love when the only way that you let someone love you is on your terms. I, I missed out on a lot of years early on in my marriage, probably still to this day that I do this, but I missed out early on in my marriage on a ton of the way that my wife was loving me because she wasn't loving me the way that I always wanted her to love me. I would come home from work and this was the line that came out of my mouth a lot of days. What did you do all day? It doesn't work. It's not a good line. It does not helpful. And, and there's, there's a phrase that goes with that. And this, this phrase is a, a phrase of entitlement, right? I thought I deserved the house to be cleaned when I showed up after my long day of work. I was expecting her to love me on my terms. And in fact, often I missed what she was doing and how she was taking care of our home and what she was doing because I needed her to love me the way I wanted to be loved. Let's keep going. Luke 16, 1 through 13. This is, this is called the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, I want you to read this. Uh, the thing I'm going to ask you to do is after this today, I want you to go home and I want you to read this in a bunch of different versions. This is one of these stories, one of these parables in Scripture that's really hard to understand. It trips a lot of people up. It's really confusing. Let me tell you the premise of it, and then I'll let you deal with it on your own, on your own time. Um, So here's what it is. There's this guy. He's a master of a house, really, really wealthy man, and he has a manager that oversees all of his properties, all of his monies. And he finds out that this manager has been dealing dishonestly with his money stealing from him i don't know it doesn't describe it exactly and so he fires the guy the master of the house fires this manager and says hey look you're crooked you've done it wrong you're fired and so the manager the guy who has been taking care of all of the master's money goes to all the people he's been dealing with and he says hey i just got fired but here's the deal you know how you owed the master a thousand dollars Go change the bill real quick. Let's put on it that you only owe him 500. You know how, and then he goes to the next guy. You know how you owed him 800? Let's change it real quick to 400. You know how you, uh, you owed him 200? Let's change it real quick to 50. And the manager comes back, apparently, to the master of the house and says, hey, here's what I did. And the master of the house goes, great work. Great work. You did a good job. And you go, what? Like the guy just stole from you and you're applauding him. And the hard part of this story is that it appears as though Jesus 
applauds the criminal as well. Read it. Go read it for yourself sometime. But if you get into the nuance of the last couple of words, what you're going to see is that Jesus is promoting this thing called generosity. He's pursuing, he's pushing people towards this way of living that is a way of giving. And um, spend some time with it. But here's, here's some of the words that Jesus uses in this story. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's referring to money here. um, And it's the reason the Pharisees are going to get mad at him for our next parable. But this is a truth reality right here is that it is really hard to serve two masters. And I will tell you this, uh, many of us, I'll put myself included in this, have made ourselves the masters, have put ourselves on the throne, and once we have done that, it is really difficult to come under the authority of the one who is truly on the throne. Tim Keller says it this way, he says, um, If you find that your God does not disagree with you sometimes, you're probably serving an idolized version of yourself. He's smart. He's wicked smart, that guy, Tim Keller. There is real health, real beauty of coming under the authority of the one who is actually in charge. And um, it's really difficult to serve two masters. And you're not the master. I'm not the master. We make really lousy masters. Um, One of my favorite things that Paul the Apostle does when he starts his letters, so we have all these books of the Bible in the New Testament written by Paul. They're actually letters. Uh, And what he does is when he he starts off a lot of his letters, he, he writes it this way, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He knew who his master was. Let's keep rolling. Luke 16, 14 through 18. The law and the kingdom of God is what this is titled. Um, he, he says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they got offended by his conversation about you can't serve both your money and your God. And, and they got offended by his conversation on generosity. Uh, he, he starts talking to them directly. And here's what he says. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Those are strong words. But listen, look, look at these next words. This, this has tripped up many, many people in the reading of it. And then he, he includes this. He's talking about money. He's talking about serving two masters. He's talking about justifying yourself before men. And then he puts this phrase in there. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Um, Let me share with you couple of things. One, why he's saying this. And two, what he's saying. Um, 
there, at this time, there is a rabbi, uh, probably one of the most prominent rabbis of the time. His name's Rabbi Halil. Rabbi Halil. And he claims, uh, and it was the common practice because of his claim, he claims by his interpretation of the law of Moses that men who are the head, the spiritual leader of their home, if they have been violated by their wife in any way, have permission to divorce. He claims, or, or, or in some of the writings that describe his way of describing the rules to this, one of the phrases in there says, even if your wife has oversalted your dinner... You may divorce her if you so choose. Another one is, even if your wife goes out into the streets with not the appropriate head covering and embarrasses you amongst your friends, you may divorce her for that very reason. He's saying, look, you are those who justify yourself, your actions before men. And I'm telling you, if you have divorced your wife because of these reasons, it's adultery. Because those aren't grounds for divorce. Listen, it, he, he, in other Gospels it describes it this way. And this is such a clear example of what he's actually saying. Listen to this. This is in Matthew 19, 3-9. through 9. And a Pharisee came up to him and tested him by asking. He's trying to trap Jesus up. He says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then this is, then he continues. Then he said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Listen to what Jesus says. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Because of your interp- interpretation. But from the beginning, it was not actually so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Super clear what he's doing here in this verse and what's being described here in Matthew. Does that make sense, you guys? Matthew 5.32 also says it. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. But remember what he's getting at. He's saying, you're trying to justify your behavior, your self-compulsion, your fulfilling of your own desires and wants amongst men, and it's not okay. There's a better way. All right, let's keep going. I got a little heavy. I apologize. It's just in there. We got to deal with it when it comes. Um, this next story... I'm not, there's not a one-liner, there's not a scripture piece in it. Um, it's this story of, of a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. Th- this is an interesting story. Uh, the rich man, this is not the Lazarus that you know. Uh, 
from, from other stories, this is a different Lazarus. Lazarus is a really poor man, and he's essentially laying on the doorstep of this really rich man's house, and he keeps begging for things, and the rich man never gives him anything. And both end up dying and going to the afterlife, and the rich man is in hell, and Lazarus makes it to heaven, and the rich man sees Lazarus hanging out with Abraham in heaven, and he's like, can I get a little bit of that? And essentially, they say, like, no, like, you're, you, you chose wrong. You chose to not come under Scripture. He says, look, the prophets and the law of Moses were presented to you, and you didn't submit to them. And the rich man goes, well, do this for me then. I've got five brothers back on earth, and they don't believe this to be true. They don't know that what's going on is reality. Will, will you send someone to tell them? And essentially what gets told to the rich man is um, they have the word of God that declares the truth, and it has been sent to them. And if they can't trust that, they're going to end up just like you. I'm sorry. It's a really profound statement but essentially what he's saying if you can't come under the authority of scripture you're not getting to the big house there is humility in submitting yourself to the authority of god's word a couple more you doing all right okay luke 17 1 through 4 uh, in my bible it's titled temptation to sin and this is just a sweet one. Uh, he's just talking to his disciples. But listen, look at, look at the words he uses here. Mark, will you get it for us? There we go. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I'm sorry, you got to forgive him. There's real beauty and forgiveness in, in what he's talking about here. There's lots of forms of forgiveness. But in this sense, he's saying, look, if the person's willing to be sorry for what they've done, free them from that. Like, let it go. Say, hey, you are forgiven. It's, it's really hard, you guys, to forgive someone when you're stuck in your own entitlement of what you deserve. It makes it really hard to free the other person from what they've done to you. Let it go, is what he's saying. It's just, it's just a simple, really basic thing. Really simple concept, really hard to do. Okay, let's keep going. Luke 17, 2 through 37. This is the coming of the kingdom. He's describing the kingdom, and he's just saying, look, it's not going to present itself the way you thought it was. It's going to come a little bit differently. Um, and then this is what he says. But whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Are you catching the theme? Let's keep rolling then. Last one. Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. They've gone to the temple, the synagogue to pray. And the Pharisee is standing there seeing this crooked criminal, this tax collector, and his prayer to God is, thank you, God, that I am not him. That's his prayer. And the tax collector on the other side, his prayer is, Father, forgive me because I'm a sinful man. And this is what Jesus says. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's an important phrase. That they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. And then further down he says, and I tell you, this man, describing uh, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Remember, that was the phrase we started with. I'm telling you, these concepts in here, this way of Jesus, this concept of losing to gain, is is like one of the hardest things to believe to be true. Like, that this way of living would actually produce life and not the other way around. It is really hard to believe that this reality is the best way to go. I didn't, I didn't write these words that Jesus says in this Bible. He did, and he claims that it is a different system, that it is a different way, and that it is a better way. That you and I were created to give our lives away, not to self-gain, but for the sake of love for others. And the way that I know that this is the best way, that I'm convinced that it's the best way, one, because I'm seeing it change my life, and change the way I live, and change the way I love, and change the way I engage with my spouse and my kids and those around me. I'm seeing it, and it is bringing life to me. But I also see it because of this verse, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. The one who taught us this way was better. It says this about him. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, whom though he was in the form of God, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The very one who spoke these words into existence chose to live them out. Chose to say, I will not self-exalt, but I will surrender and I will submit as a servant, it says. Because he knew it was the best kind of currency. He knew that it was the best way to life. And here's what's great. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And guess who is exalted on the highest seat? Our king right? He chose to be a servant. He chose to come under. Uses words like obedient to the Father. This is Jesus Christ. This is the one who chose to surrender for you, who chose to not just teach a new way, but to live it for you and for I and uh, for all of us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that there is an alternative, that there is a way that breathes life into our bones that is different than just self-promotion, that is different than just self-indulgence, that is different than just chasing after whatever will fill me up, that there is actually a way to live that is more life-giving than that, and it is giving my life away.
Thank you for teaching us that. Thank you for living that way. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. And thank you for giving us a way home. We love you and we give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.